Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. Becoming obsessed with what people think about you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. All of our campuses, Morristown, New Brunswick, if you're on an internet campus, welcome. That's our central truth today. Take it to heart. Becoming obsessed with what people think about you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. I want to welcome you to Liquid Church. I'm Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And really, that's the central truth of part three, our current series, Identity Theft. And we're coming clean today. Whether we admit it or not, the majority of us, in some ways, are addicted to approval. We are held hostage by what others think about us. Call it people-pleasing. Call it approval addiction. It is one of the more manipulative strategies used by the enemy of our soul to hijack our identity in Christ. And the reality is this, guys, I can tell you this with some degree of honesty because not too long ago, I was a world-class people pleaser. Um, those thoughts that you heard kind of go through my head, uh, mine backstage a few minutes ago, those are not the real thoughts that go through my head anymore as I prepare to, uh, to share a message with you guys, but they used to be. That is exactly what I would think every week. I used to need to kind of psych myself up, tell myself that, oh man, I got to make these guys laugh. I got to get them to like me because if they don't like me, maybe they won't come back. And that would be the worst thing ever. I mean, you know, that's what I used to think. And that's natural. I mean, look, we all want to be liked. We all want to get a big thumbs up and people say, hey, that was awesome. You were awesome. Oh, that's great. But you know what? When we naturally give in to that un, un, I must say unholy, unhealthy temptation to draw our value or define our identity from the opinions of others, it literally hijacks our identity. When we look to other people's criticism or their praise on the verdict for how we're doing, it has a way of defining not just how we're doing, but who we are. And the reality is this, becoming obsessed with what people think about you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. Let me invite you to turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 27. We're going to take a look at this, page 460 in your Bibles. Proverbs is the book of ancient wisdom, and it has a lot to say about the power of praise or approval in our lives. And Proverbs 27, 21 is our anchor verse today. Let's read this all of our campuses. Big, loud voice, everybody together. Ready? The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but man is tested by what? By the praise he receives. And you guys remember this, high school, science class, you know what a crucible is, like this little melting pot, you put metals in it, you, you put a little Bunsen burner, a blowtorch, you heat the thing up, and what happens? It burns out, draws all the impurities of a piece of metal to the surface, and reveals what it's truly made out of. You get what he's saying? The true character of the metal is revealed when the temperature gets high. The writer of Proverbs is saying this, in the same way, what people say about us, whether it's praise, compliments, or criticism, either good or bad, what people say about us has a way of drawing all our impurities to the surface and revealing and exposing our true character, what's really underneath and what really defines us. If you're an approval addict, um, when someone gives you a compliment or kind of a slap on the back, you, you feel great about yourself. But if someone criticizes you or you get the thumbs down, your approval ratings tank, you tank. Uh, I saw a good contrast this past week at the inauguration. Some of you have been following this, the presidential inauguration, big historic thing. 
To me, very interesting that throughout the inauguration process, they kept contrasting the approval ratings of our incoming and outgoing president. For instance, President Bush dropped to 22% approval rating, actually. And this is, this is really the lowest approval rating in presidential history. It's about 40% lower than his approval numbers at the start of the Iraqi war. At the same time, Obama's coming in at 79% of, of Americans have a favorable view of President Obama. They're optimistic. He's going to lead the country in the right direction. I mean, he hasn't done a whole lot. He's, kind of, you know, he just kind of at this point has smiled and said, "We're going somewhere different," and they're giving him the thumbs up about 80 percent approval ratings. Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. The truth is, you don't have to be a politician to be affected by the thumbs up or thumbs down of people around you. We all have constituencies to whom we look for their approval. Maybe it's your parents. You know, maybe you're, you're not doing good unless mom or dad approves. Maybe your parents don't approve of like your, your, your spouse or the person you're dating or your marriage plans, or they don't approve of your, of your choice of career. Like you're going into like ministry or work for a church or missions or something like that. And they're like, oh, we kind of hope for more. Not so much. That's not so great. Too bad. We wanted a doctor. Or um, you don't even have to be young to seek out your parents' approval. Maybe you're grown, you've got a family of your own, and the reality is your folks are kind of critical of your parenting style. Like, you know, you really could be a little bit better mom. You know, you're kind of, you know, I wouldn't do that with the kids. Well, we always did that. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Any of us who are, who are gainfully employed, you get feedback at work. You get what's called a performance review. How am I doing? Scale of 1 to 10. You're either meeting uh, expectations or you're falling short. Had a friend, he's actually in sales. Check this out. He got a new boss, a female, uh, female uh, leader in his division. And she had a bell installed outside of her office. And she said to all the guys, she said, whenever you make a sale, I want you to come and ring my bell. Ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. So this guy, 42 years old, he makes a phone call. He makes a sale and he has to go and ding-a-ling-a-ling. I'm ringing her bell, my boss's bell. It's amazing what we do. Some of you are in school, teachers, coaches, whatever it is. You get a report card. You're defined by your grades. I'm A. I'm kind of an excellent person. I'm actually no C. I'm just kind of average. Maybe you got a rejection letter and all of a sudden it's just crippled you because I thought I was, but I got the thumbs down or I was first chair. Now I'm second string. And, or maybe we look to the approval of the people who we say are most important. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And we have a hard time making a decision only unless we get a thumbs up from them. And for some of us, this is where it gets crazy. Even our kids are a source of approval. Like, I feel like I'm a good parent if my kids like me. I mean, this is the ultimate tyranny, right? I mean, yet many parents are held hostage to their kids' approval. Like, well, I'm a good mommy if, if, if Junior likes me, if we're buddies. The crucible for silver... The furnace for gold, but man is tested by what? By the praise he receives. In other words, the way people accept or reject us has a way of defining our very character, telling us who we are at our core. Personally speaking, I'll be totally honest with you. My addiction to approval really began in college. I am a late bloomer. And uh, I recall in my college years trying on three distinct identities um, to get people to like me. Uh, I went to college in the Midwest, and when I arrived at Wheaton College, I quickly discovered that being a prep uh, was central to fitting in and being accepted. Now, I mean, look at that. That's my first year in college. Now, here's the deal. I grew up in New Jersey, so I come walking into college with high-top Reebok sneakers and Zubaz pants, okay? And I come walking in, I'm like, whoa, big hair, nobody's doing that out here. And so I kind of conformed, and I quickly got my, you know, polo, you know, shirt and, and tie and jacket, and I wore khakis and anything from L.L. Bean, my little, like, you know, brown moccasins. Freshman year, 
By sophomore year, though, I joined the hockey team. And I just started hanging out with other players. So I shed my prep costume and, and went for the identity of, of jock. And I wore my hockey jacket all over campus. We all ate together at the dining hall. We all were the, the athlete. That's who I was trying to be. And that's how I want people to see me. But the problem was is that I sucked. So my, my success in games did not translate very well that day. So by senior year, I ditched my athletic uniform and grew my hair long and became the rock star. I kid you not, that's what I looked like when I graduated senior year from Wheaton College. I got my first leather jacket. I became the rock star, you know, and that's, I didn't have anything to do with music, of course. But that's how I looked when I graduated and spent most of my senior year. We'd go into to Chicago to rock shows on the weekends and hanging out with people who were into that scene. The point is this. As humans, we naturally try to identify with groups of people who we think will offer us the most acceptance or approval. And some of this is just a natural part of human development. I'm sure you've got your own pictures. We all can show that. But and we go through different stages of discovery before we become comfortable with who God made us to be. But here's the truth. Some people never outgrow it. They never outgrow it. Some people, they go through their entire life trying on different costumes, putting on masks, or exerting great time and energy to project the facade that they think will finally win the approval of the people whose opinions they think matter most. Now that I'm kind of in the middle season of life, I'm, I'm not a jock or a rock star or anything. I'm just kind of this, I don't know, I got a nice shirt. <laughs> I see this all the time with people in the middle season of life. For instance, with a lot of young moms, we have obviously young kids. And becoming a mom is hard. I mean, you talk about a dramatic change of identity. Uh, one day you're like, you know, you're your own independent woman. And now you're like a, you know, vending machine for milk. And, and, and that was really hard for Colleen. She worked in Manhattan and was, was kind of a successful businesswoman. And it was like very jarring to her that now it's like my identity is wiping noses and wiping butts. And, uh, and it's wonderful, but it's a shift. And for a lot of young moms, kind of, you know, there's a lot of guilt and worry because you assume this new identity and begin pursuing this impossible image of what it means to be the perfect mother. And the, and the in-laws meddle. Well, you know, have you really thought of doing it this way, Meg? Because that's kind of like, you know, out old thing. And your friends, you look at their, their kids, and you're like, they got better behaved kids. And you feel like you're failing. The crucible for silver, the furnace for gold. But a mom is tested by the praise she receives. Or even guys, guys who get into the lifestyle of work, kind of climbing the corporate ladder, right? Investing long hours. All of a sudden, somewhere along the way, work comes to define you. Success is often the on-ramp to becoming an approval act. That's why it's very insidious. Maybe you're rewarded with profits and promotions and prestige and work subtly becomes who you are because you've learned to ring the bell and earn the applause of others. The problem is this. If what you do becomes who you are, what happens when work tanks? What happens when your business fails or you lose your job? If you are what you do, you lose your identity. I don't know if you've seen this in the news. We've seen reports of this with a recent rash of suicides among bankers and money managers and investors. There have been four high-profile financial whizzes over the last month who have taken their lives. Why? Because somewhere along the line, the profits and perks became who they are. And when it all came tumbling down in the financial collapse, so did their sense of self-worth. That's the point of Proverbs 27, 21. When the heat gets turned up, that's when our, our character comes to the surface. That's when our core identity is revealed. Becoming obsessed with what people think about you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. 
People-pleasing, at its core, is a distinctly spiritual issue. That is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, he says this, There's trouble ahead when you live only for what? All of our campuses for the what? Approval of others. Saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. Popularity contests are not truth contests. Your task is to be what? To be true, not popular. Are you a people pleaser? I just ask that question. And nudge your hand up if you feel like it. Have you been driven, like me at times in my life, by what people think? Are, are you defined by the truth of God or the opinions of others? Let me unpack this for a minute for you by highlighting a couple characteristics of people pleasers. If you're taking notes, the first one is this. You know you're a people pleaser if you take most criticism personally. Early in ministry, that was me. I took criticism or praise very, very personally. I based my sense of worth, quite honestly, about what people said about the weekly sermon. So if I, on Monday morning, if I got a, a letter or, or, you know, compliment or someone said, or someone walked out, you guys would shake my, oh, Pastor Tim, you hit it out of the park, man. Oh my gosh, that was life-changing. I've never thought about God that way. Well, I would be like, awesome. I guess I'm a great pastor. I'm doing a good job. I'm ringing the bell. <laughs> But the problem was on Mondays, if I got a critical email or letter, that was boring. <laughs> you know, that, that, was, that, that sermon went way too long. In fact, I don't even think I'm going to become a Christian. I think I'm going to renounce my faith. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm terrible, God. And I would beat myself up all week, honestly, because that became who I was. I took all criticism very personally. All our campuses, raise your hand if you identify with that. With that. Raise your hand if you take criticism very, very personally. See, like religion, we talked about this last week, people-pleasing leads to pride or despair. Because when you value popularity more than truth, we become hostage to the opinions of others. Today, I'm mostly free of that. I'm not immune to it. But quite honestly, when I receive praise or criticism, I receive it just for what it is. It is people's opinions, and they can say whatever they like. But it has less to do with my self-worth, because I've begun recalibrating that to be based on what God thinks, not what people think about my leadership. Second characteristics of people pleasers is that they find it hard to express their true feelings. Raise your hand if that's you as well. The reason for this is because on the inside, people pleasers have an extraordinary sense of rejection. You don't want to be rejected by others. So you find it very difficult to open up and reveal your true thoughts or feelings because you're afraid people would reject you if they knew what you're really like. I mean, you may get angry at people that just burns me up, but you smile politely. I'm serious. I, it's okay with me. No, it's a, you put up a front. We call it the false self because it can bury or camouflage your feelings. And emotional honesty, totally impossible. You can't be genuine. You can just kind of go along with things. And on the outside, you project an appealing image to make sure that everyone likes you, but no one will actually know you. The real you. That's, that's one of the remarkable ironies of people pleasing. You may be surrounded by a lot of acquaintances, but you have very few friends because no one actually knows the real you. Churches are full of people pleasers. You know why? Because you know churches are full of nice people. People who have learned very quickly not to express their true feelings, lest others disapprove. Third characteristic of people pleasers would be if you have a hard time saying no. Raise your hand if that's you. You got a hard time saying no. Ton of hands here. You tend to overcommit and say yes to anyone and everything because you don't want to run the risk of letting someone down. Maybe you're like me. You appear agreeable on the outside, but are actually kind of resentful on the inside. Hey, Tim, can you, uh, can you come over and do this? Oh, yeah, sure, no problem, I'll be there. Like I have kids or family or, or church, i got to do all these other things. Will you take me for granted? No, of course I'll be there. Praise Jesus, I love you, brother. 
I'll help you out. I can't say no. Sometimes you feel like a vending machine. Someone just pulls the lever and they get whatever they want. On the job, at home, doing other people's work for them. Maybe even church people take advantage of you, right? Because they know good old Tim can be counted on to do whatever is asked, all for Jesus. And on the surface, you appear to be a self-sacrificing saint. But just below the surface, you deeply resent people who demand everything and more from you. Because you can't say no. I don't want to let anyone down. I want to please everyone. Listen to Jesus' words. Listen. There's trouble ahead when you live only for what? For the approval of others. Saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. Popularity contests are not truth contests. Your task is to be true, not popular. There's an author by the name of Harriet Breaker, and she wrote a book with the title, The Disease to Please. And I think that's an excellent description because people pleasing really is a disease of the soul that is very dangerous. When we become addicted to the approval of others, it's like a drug. We can never get enough. And it's like it, it can actually take over our lives because it distorts the truth of who we are in Christ and actually hijacks our identity. Remember, becoming obsessed with what others think of you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks of you. Now, lest you think this is psychobabble or like a sermon on self-help or something, let me explain why this is a profoundly spiritual issue. Uh, if you're taking notes, I got two biblical truths about the disease to please. And the first truth is this, at its root, people-pleasing is a form of idolatry. I'll just let that sink in because I know it's a harsh statement, but hear me out. We all know this. The God says, you shall have no other small gods, G, before me. But when we draw our identity from the opinion of people rather than the opinion of God, we say, in effect, I actually care more about what everyone else thinks than what he thinks. I serve their words, not his. And again, this is a spiritual issue. It's not just a relational one. A good example of this is in the New Testament. Some of the early Christians actually, um, they, were, they were scared to witness. They were scared to tell people they were a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're scared because you're like, people think I'm the Jesus freak. I don't want to be criticized. I don't want to be, you know. But why? Check this out. John 12. This is an amazing verse. Let's read this. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for what? For fear they'd be put out of the synagogue. For they loved what? Praise from men more than praise from who? Praise from God. Idolatry. When the approval of others around us carry more weight than the approval of our Father in heaven. My people pleasing um, reached full bloom after college when I got my first job. Um, before I actually was a, 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 a pastor, I, got, well, I was an English teacher. I taught eighth grade English. That was my first job. And uh, as a new teacher, you get all sorts of thumbs up, thumbs down from all sorts of people. You get it from your supervisor who, who reviews your daily lesson plans. You're inundated with classroom observations every other week, people watching. You get constant feedback, not just from you know your, your, your colleagues, but from students, from their parents, all that stuff. So... When I, because I was young and inexperienced, I really wanted to impress my boss, the, uh, the English department chair. She was a lovely woman, but I wanted to prove that I was worth keeping and I was a good teacher. So I typed my lesson plans meticulously. I mean, I crossed every T, dotted every I. I would write comments on papers for my students. I would be like, incredible metaphorical use of the thematic language of Thoreau. These are like 13-year-old kids, you know. I'd write all this stuff because I wanted to show that I was covering all the bases and everything. And, uh, and when I get observed, I like put on a show. I mean, I would bring my best stuff, da, 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 da. 
And during my evaluations, my department chair, she always commented on my lesson plans and she would do it on a yellow post-it note. She would simply write, she'd say, outstanding job, Mr. Lucas. What a creative lesson plan. Wonderful anticipatory set. That was like, you know, the, the, the hook you used to get, bring the kids in. Wow, you really engaged all their learning modalities. Really? Did I? And she would write these little comments on, on these little post-it notes and put them all over my lesson plans. And this is kind of, kind of funny because I made it through my first year, barely. Second year of teaching went better. And by the third year, I got tenure. But then I decided I want to move up. I want to move to the big show, high school. And uh, I talked to my department supervisor. She said, that's fine. She said, you know, I want to encourage you. So, so I was going to move to the high school. And what was amazing is my last day came of my first job teaching eighth grade English. And I got all my books packed. I got all my lesson plans. And as I cleaned out my desk, my desk drawer there, I reached back to get, you know, what it was in there, papers and pencils and the paper clips and stuff, and felt this like little nest of papers. And I pulled one out. And I was like, oh, look at that. Like, that's awesome. Great job, Tim. That must have been for my, my first lesson plan. Wow, you're doing phenomenal. Oh, that's so cool. I reached back in there some more, and one after another, I pulled out post-it note after post-it note, four years of praise and comments from her saying, you're doing a phenomenal job. Tim, you are an amazing teacher. You are phenomenal. Gosh, what a gift you have. That was the best creative lesson. And I pulled out in the silence of my classroom 30 notes that I had been squirreling away in my desk over four years of teaching. And I remember looking and reading all of these notes and I had them like all in my hand and one of my colleagues, the guy who taught next door, came walking in and he's like, what are those? I was like, oh, what? no, nothing, I'm not doing anything. What? what do you mean, nothing, what? I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh gosh, he caught me. Why was I embarrassed? Because my need to please my department chair was exposed that I wanted to be known as an effective teacher and it was my first job 15 years ago. But that pile of post-it notes was a monument to my insecurity as a young teacher. And that was the beginning, quite honestly, of my disease to please that followed into adulthood. And it crippled me spiritually. Because you know what it did? It put me on this performance treadmill that said, I am worth something if others approve of my performance. The formula goes like this, if you're a math person. Your self-worth equals your performance in other people's opinions of it. Whether good or bad, you are defined by what other people say or think about you. Whether it's praise or criticism, they're the verdict and they define your sense of self-worth. I mean, we, we all know, we can know what we're supposed to say. Well, my true identity is hidden in Christ. But we value praise from who? Praise from men more than we do praise from God. And the approval of others becomes an idol in our lives. Biblical truth number one. People-pleasing is a subtle form of idolatry. Biblical truth number two, according to scripture, people-pleasing is a trap. Why don't you put your finger there and flip over to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. Let's, let's read this ancient wisdom aloud together. All of our campuses, big loud voice. Fear of who? Fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. I want you to circle that word there, snare, very interesting Hebrew word there. The word is mokesh. And the word for mokesh actually means a noose to capture an animal or a hook in the nose. It literally means a hook. That's what a mokesh or a snare is here in the Hebrew language. 
So it says, in essence, fear of man, what people are going to say, what people are going to think, is a hook in the nose that we get dragged around by. Can you do this for me? Oh, sure, absolutely, because I want to make sure that I that I, I please you. Uh, okay, can you make make sure you you know look cool and wear the right stuff and go the right place? Oh, absolutely, because I want to buy stuff I don't need to impress people I don't like. Why? Because I got a hook in my nose, and it can carry you around your entire life. This hook. That's what the fear of man does, and it is disgusting. Aren't you glad you're watching a screen today? That's the point, guys. That's, that's the Hebrew word picture. Craig Rochelle, to whom I am indebted for this insight, says that there are three hooks or three traps that our enemy will use to bait us. The first one is what he calls the I will compromise for you trap. Uh, a lot of people, it's funny because a lot of people get caught, uh, caught in like abuse or addiction or stuff. They often say that their experimentation with drugs or alcohol or sex was actually driven by a deeper desire originally just to belong, just to be liked. They, they, they didn't want to do it, but they went along with it because they had a hook in their nose. Or, or, or you, you guys know how this goes, right? Because you want to please like your boyfriend or your girlfriend, so you know how this works, right? The guy's pressuring the girl, and the girl's like, no, 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 I, I want to save myself. I know what God's truth is. I want to do what God wants, but I don't want him to leave me or dump me. I don't want him to think that, that I don't love him. And so, okay, I'll just, I just kind of, and you actually get led around by the nose in your relationships. Or maybe you're great at your, your job, but sales are down. And so your boss is putting the pressure on. I want to see those numbers. I want to make sure they look good. So you massage the numbers a bit so your boss will approve and you compromise because the fear of man is a what? Is a, it's a hook in the nose and I'll, I'll do whatever it takes just to make sure I get the thumbs up. People pleasers are easily manipulated, controlled by others. They're willing to compromise because they care more about what people think than what God thinks. Second trap is the, what I call the I will overcommit for you trap. Because you have such a suffocating need to please others, you just can't say no. No matter what people ask, you're like, yes, 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 yeah. You know that Jim Carrey movie? What's that new movie uh, called? It's uh, Yes, Yes Men. Yes! Right? Everything. You always overextend yourself, whether it's people or projects or causes. And it's not motivated by love or a servant's heart, but fear. I may not live up to people's expectations. So if I say no, they may not like me. I'll let them down and I have to say yes. And it's a, a what? It's a mokesh. It's a hook in the nose. The third trap is what I'd call the I will wear a smile for you trap. And even if things aren't going well, I'll smile. Even if I'm angry or if I'm depressed, I will put a smile on. Because I, I, I'm worried that if I let the real me show through, you'd reject me. You wouldn't want to be around who I really am. So I'll be happy, 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 happy all the time. <laughs> Right? Remember that song we sing it as kids? You know, I got the joy, 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 joy. Where, where? Down in my heart. Where? That? That's how a lot of Christians walk through life. Nice people singing a song, totally lying to your face. Because they got a mokesh, a hook in their nose leading them around. And you're never known. Got a wall of words. Got a facade up. Know a lot of people who don't know you. Loneliness, resentment, Lack of boundaries, compromise of values and morals. Do you see why being a people pleaser is at its core a spiritual issue? It's idolatry. It, it is one of the most subtle identity theft techniques in hell's handbook. 
There, there is a, a tension here, guys, for any sincere follower of Christ trying to live authentically in a very insincere world. Even the Apostle Paul, um, he had to deliver one time a very tough message to the uh, Galatian church, and he knew his message would not be popular. And so he wrote this in Galatians chapter 1. He says, obviously, I'm not trying to be a what? A people pleaser. No, I am trying to please who? Please God. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be Christ's servant. Overcoming the disease to please is central to being a servant of Christ. It is central to following Jesus. It is central to experiencing the freedom that he died to win us. See, folks, when we base our self-worth on our performance and then other people's opinions of that performance, we omit the opinion of the only person who can offer the unconditional acceptance that our souls long for God. What's the answer? And I'll just be honest with you. Right now, pull up a chair. This is an ongoing challenge for me. I mean, I'm your pastor. I, I want to serve you. I want to serve you. I want to be liked by you. I don't, I, don't, I don't like getting nasty emails. I don't. I'm like any other person. But the rea- I don't like when people throw rocks and stuff. I don't. But the only way for me, honestly, to effectively lead you as Christ does is for me to base decisions on what pleases God and not what pleases man. And this is the answer, folks. Because if you're taking notes, our final thought for approval addicts like me is that the love of God is the only antidote for the fear of man. I want to look to the example of Jesus to help you guys understand this at a heart level, guys. Because in the Gospels, you'll notice Jesus is consistently referred to as the Son of God. And, and a lot of us think that's like a theological title, and, and, and it is. But, but, but the title that he's given has more significance relationally. Because at its core, the Son of God is where Jesus drew his core identity. It's what defined him. He was defined as being the beloved Son of his heavenly Father. And it empowered his life, it framed his ministry, and it is what gave him confidence to walk to the cross in spite of people jeering and spitting and throwing rocks. I want you to consider this. At the outset of Jesus' ministry, we all know this, he was baptized. And the way that Matthew tells it is that Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens parted, and the Spirit of God descended like a dove. And then it says this, a voice from heaven said, let's read these words together, this is my Son, whom I what? Love, with him I am well pleased. In other words, before Jesus did anything, Healed one person, performed one miracle, took one step towards the cross where he would give his life. His heavenly father hit the pause button. Said, stop, 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 stop. Before anything else happens, I want to publicly declare in front of everyone with an earshot, this is my boy. Look at him. Jesus is my, he's my boy. This is my son. Whom I love, I am whom I am well pleased. He brings me pleasure, this boy of mine. He is my delight. He is my joy. He is my heart. I mean, you talk about a father's blessing. I mean, imagine the heavens parting and you hear your father's voice, not condemning you, but words that speak unconditional approval and tender affection towards you in front of everyone. Folks, this is the moment 
in which the heavenly father publicly bestows the identity of Jesus. You are my beloved son. And before you do one thing, I want everybody who's listening to know this. You bring me pleasure, boy. I loved you. The bond we have. I mean, there is incredible power and tenderness between a father and his son at the center of the universe. My little boy, Dell, is four years old. I am an earthly father, not a divine one, certainly. But the interesting thing is with my boy, we have a little connection. Uh, and I know because I'm reminded of it every morning around 6.45 a.m. At 6.45 a.m., that's when my, my little boy, Dell, um, he's four years old, gets up. And he's like our human alarm clock. And we know because I'm half asleep, but then I hear it. Boom! And he jumps into our bed. He gets a running start from his room across the hall, runs across the hall, and jumps into our bed. And, and that's fine. Like, okay, like, you know, great. You can snuggle up and everything. But here's the problem. My little boy is very tactile. He likes the sense of touch. And so what he needs to do in the morning, first thing, 645, is rub daddy's whiskers like this. He just gets his hands in there. And I just love to rub, rub, rub it like this. And I'm like, oh, okay, who's, who's doing it? Who's waking me up? And he goes, it's daddy's boy. It's daddy's boy. That's what he does to, to kind of wake me up in the morning. But I love that because that's how he defines himself. I'm daddy's boy. Those are his words. He loves coming in and nuzzling. And then I kind of hold him and we wrestle a little bit. And it is this very, very tender affection between Abba and his child, father and son. And this is between an earthly father and his boy. I want you to imagine that at the center of the universe, the ancients said it was held together by the heavenly affection of a father and his son. That is the pulse, not a mathematical equation at the center of the universe, the relational bond of love and in total acceptance between a father and his boy. Jesus never outgrew his father's love. It was who he was. It was his core identity. And he was not only defined who he was, but honestly, it kept him from pursuing this. The cheers of the crowd. As he grew in popularity and he performed miracles and he, he got backslaps and people gave the thumbs up, people actually wanted to make him king. But John tells us Jesus would not what? Entrust himself to them for he knew all men. And he did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. In other words, Jesus refused to put his, his trust in man's approval, in, 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 in man's opinions, because he knew they were fickle. He knew the same people who would wave palm branches going, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Two days later, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. People are fickle. And Jesus would not entrust himself to them, to any man. He didn't fall for, for the hook uh, of their praises or their criticisms, but simply remained focused on who he was and what his father thought. I am father's beloved. In John 6, we read, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, Jesus said, but what? To do the will of him who sent me. In other words, guys, throughout his life, Jesus didn't fall for the hook. He wasn't defined by post-it note applause, but the applause of heaven. What does my father think? What does he think of me? Who am I? That's what gives me the confidence to walk even the hardest road to a cross and give my life for people who are spitting and throwing rocks at me. Literal, not metaphoric. So many of us, we settle for post-it note applause. 
This is what we think life is about rather than the applause of your heavenly father. And it is one of the most tragic things because like me, it's very sad. We collect like a little squirrel all the compliments and praises that people give us and say, I'll carry them around in my little desk thing because I'm entrusting myself to you. Am I doing good? Do you remember, is it Sally Field at the Oscars? Thank you, you like me. You really, really like me. No, they don't. (laughs) They hate you, Sally. I'm sorry, it's true. You're not defined by what your crowd thinks. You're not performing in front of an audience. You're performing in front of an audience of one. Your heavenly father, what does he think? That's a question for you. You want to ask a scary question? What does your heavenly father think of you? I mean, as a son or daughter of the most high God, what does he think of you? Have you ever asked him? See, the thing is this. Most people have never considered, a lot of Christians have never considered the fact that God actually likes them. They know God loves me. That's just theologically. He loves me because he has to love me. I mean, he's God. But have you ever considered that as one redeemed by the father, by Christ, that he actually, he actually likes you. That he is radiating affection and tenderness towards you as his child. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah said he rejoices over you with singing. Have you ever considered, I know you might not believe this, just open up your heart, close your eyes for just a minute, that you are a source of pleasure, well pleased, to your heavenly father. Some of you have never considered that. Some of you, you've, you, you, you've heard it, but you've never believed it. And I want to let these words sink in and pierce your heart. That God the Father actually feels tenderness towards you as his son, as his daughter, the way I do. A fraction of it towards my son, Del. Look, that's, that's my boy, Eddie, who I love, who I am well pleased. That's my daughter, Lauren, whom I love, she is a source of pleasure to me. Flaws and all. Yes, that's Liz, my child. I love her as much as an infinite God does. And she doesn't have to do one thing to prove it. She doesn't have to earn it. She doesn't have to get my approval or pleasure or make me clap. Because I redeemed her in my son, Jesus Christ. He's her brother. And now I accept her as she is. She's my little girl, my dolly, my beloved. Folks, the heart of Christianity is when we put our trust in Christ as the, as the embodiment of God's living word, the truth, a new identity is bestowed on us. As 1 John 3, 1 puts it, it says this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called what? Children of God. And then John says almost as in belief, And that is what we are! <laughs> In Christ Jesus, we have everything we need to be accepted by and acceptable to our Heavenly Father. We were created by our Father, and by nature we've sinned. We have gone astray. We have, we've fallen for the hook, as it were. But Jesus didn't fall for the hook. Our brother didn't fall for it. See, we go through life looking for all sorts of things to get to fill this void for unconditional love and acceptance. We all desire, but those identities never work. Because people are fickle. And because we are flawed and we can never do enough to spin the plates and earn our father's approval, which is why he sent Jesus. Jesus was the only one who didn't take the bait, but lived the perfect life we couldn't. And when he died on the cross, that was literally God saying, I love you this much. And I don't care that I have sweat marks underneath my arms because I don't mind. I'm not looking for your approval. So back off. I know I'm serious. We do these measurements at all the time. What if people see me sweat? No, they can never do that. But when you're in Christ, you have freedom. 
and he feels about you. How he feels about his son, Jesus. Think about that. Our identity gets stolen when we give it to others, when we seek man's approval. But what's our true identity? What is, what is the one that can't be stolen? Our identity is in Christ. In Christ you're accepted. In Christ you're loved. In Christ you're embraced. In Christ you're valued. You are a source of pleasure to God. In Christ. In Christ you can do no wrong. In Christ you are embraced by Abba. That is the truth of who you are. In Christ. That is your identity. It is the one that can never be taken from you and you can never pay enough to earn. You actually are, can we say this together? All the men, let's say this together. I'm his boy. Ready? I'm his boy. Can we say it women together? I'm daddy's girl. I'm daddy's girl. I feel pretty for a moment. No. You, that is literally, you feel that. In your bulletin, we put a single post-it note. Would you take this out? Each one of you have a single post-it note there. Take it out. Take your pen. Write this down. Write the words of who you are in Christ as a reminder this week. And I want you to write across your note very simple words. Maybe it is this. Maybe it is, I'm daddy's boy. Maybe you don't believe it. You've been searching for your earthly father's blessing your entire life. You're never going to get it. He's a broken man. He's flawed. He's fickle. Your heavenly father smiles in pleasure at you. Maybe you write down, I'm daddy's girl. And you put this on the mirror of your bathroom that you look in every week. And you just see cracks and flaws. No other ma- I'm daddy's girl. Or maybe you put it on the computer at work. Because you know what? I'll play your game and I'll ring your little bell, but that's not who I am. I'm daddy's boy. That's who you are. That's the power of living in your identity in Jesus Christ. Write it down. Take it home as a reminder of your identity is secure because my identity is as a son or daughter of the most high God. Thank you, Jesus. That is the true self, folks. Every other identity is an illusion. Every other one. Mike, Mike Bro writes, um, if we children would listen to our father and begin to really grasp his love for us, then our insecurity would go way down and our confidence in Christ would go way up. And you know what happened? Our hunger for approval and acceptance would finally be satisfied and our behavior would actually begin to reflect what our minds now know to actually be true. See, when you accept Christ into your heart, you come out of hiding. You don't live in the fear of man anymore, but you walk into the light of the love of God. This is who I am in Christ. I am defined by the love of God, not the fear of man. As Paul writes in Romans 8, he says this, he says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to what? Again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, Christ Jesus, we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are all our campuses together. What are we? God's children, our identity as dearly loved children of God is supposed to be a profound, soul-shaping, life-altering truth. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can get off the performance treadmill and let God into the center of our life and begin defining every area of it. Last month, my boy Dell was upset by some kid at school who said mean things to him. He's in preschool. I didn't get home till late that night at work, and so it was up to Colleen to console him. But the next morning, 6.45, first thing he did, 
bandaging up in the bed and telling me all about it. Daddy, he did this, daddy, did this. and this boy said mean things, daddy, and he started crying. And I, and I just said, oh, Dell, I'm sorry, you're upset. And he started rubbing my whiskers. He's like choking back tears. And, 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 and in his tears, he says, I'm daddy's boy, I'm daddy's boy. I said, you're daddy's boy. And I love you so much, you can't even grasp it. And I just squeezed him. And I just loved on him. And, and, and it made me late for work. <laughs> And soon enough, he was comforted and he was laughing again. That's the power of an earthly father's, of a, a flawed, broken father's love and acceptance. How much more powerful is your heavenly father's approval to ransom you and heal you at the deepest places? I pray this week that you will hear those words from him, the truth of who you are in Christ. It'll begin to sink into your heart and break the chains of your addiction to man's approval and set you free of the deep places. All of our campuses know this. There is so much more for you than man's empty praise, than the best thumbs up, the applause of the crowd, the thumbs down, the rocks throwing. What if you didn't settle for the applause of man, but were defined by the applause of heaven? That is who you are. That is your identity in Christ Jesus. Because of what he did, you can live with praise or criticism. Because you realize it doesn't puff you up, it doesn't beat you down because it's not the verdict on you anymore. Your self-worth is grounded in something more stable, something more eternal, the unwavering love of your Heavenly Father. Here's where I'm at with this, okay, before I ask you where you are. I am a long way from who I used to be, um, an approval addict. <laughs> defined by others' opinions, um, by the latest critical words or, or, or words of praise. It doesn't matter anymore. You know why? Not because I harden my heart. Don't be that guy. Like, I don't care what people say. That's, 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 that's posing. It's not because my heart hardened. But nowadays, I can actually receive either with joy. Because I can take people's words, whether it's praise or critique, what do I have to learn from them? I can just thank them because they don't define me. Because I know the deepest place of my being whether people accept me or not, I'm still deeply loved. I'm still completely forgiven, fully pleasing, totally accepted in Christ. And he alone is the source of my identity as a beloved son of God. Your identity is the same. It is in Christ Jesus. I want to ask you this today, all of our campuses right now, close your eyes. What would it be like to accept that truth into your heart and begin living out of it? Right now, keep your eyes closed. What kind of freedom... Does your father want to bring you? I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Talk to your heavenly father. We're going to pray all of our heads bowed. Ask your heavenly father. I, I mean, ask him a dangerous question. What do you think of me? Would you ask him to speak his words of forgiveness and acceptance and total embrace into your soul? Let's bow our heads all of our campuses for prayer. Let me just take a minute so you can talk to your heavenly father. Father Abba, we come to you through our brother Jesus and we come to you with full confidence that we will not be rejected we will not be condemned because Jesus has suffered the ultimate rejection and condemnation on our part. And he did it out of love for your love for us. So thank you, Father. Right now, Father, would you look over your people and speak? Speak at a deep place, Lord, to all the women here right now who are wrestling with, with self-worth or with issues of, of what they look like or, 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 or even healing them from rejection, Jesus. Come, Abba, speak. Speak at deep places right now. Father, I ask for all the men right now. There are men here in these, this crowd who are chronologically, biologically men, but they're still boys because they've never heard the words of blessing that a father can impart. That they are your son. 
that you are well pleased by them. They are not a failure. But you have created them and ordained them to incredible things, to be a man of God living for the glory of the Father like your son Jesus. Do that right now, Father. If this is you, this is your moment. You say, I want the Father's blessing. I want the Father's embrace. Just shoot up your hand. This is your moment. Just shoot it up all of our campuses, wherever you are. Just shoot them up, hands all over our campuses. If that's you online, let us know. This is your moment. You're saying, I want the Father's blessing. This is my moment. I'm receiving God's blessing. I'm receiving healing in Christ. Father, right now, look over your children right now, and we just ask for an incredible freedom, a a work, Lord, to go through our whole church. Lord, people turning back to you, getting off the performance treadmill and coming to freedom in Christ. We thank you for it. We ask that your spirit would continue it to the day of completion in Christ Jesus. It's in his incredibly powerful name we pray these things and ask. And all God's people, let's say it together, all our campuses, amen.